We'll read verses 27 to 30 momentarily. A couple of announcements to make before we do that. First, a couple of weeks ago, um, Alex Shelton was brought to you for membership. He has gone through the whole process and has been uh, recommended by the elders. And so we need to take a vote. So the elders have made the proposal. There's no need for a second um, all those in favor of receiving Alex Shelton into membership here at Gray Road Baptist Church, please say yes. yes. Those opposed say no. All right. Praise the Lord. Welcome, Alex. Welcome. Um, also, next week will be uh, just a blessing of a week as we uh, have the opportunity to baptize two in our service next week. One of those is Terry Britton. Terry has gone through the membership process and um, he is ready to join, and upon his baptism as a believer, he will have done all that is required to uh, join, and the elders are making that recommendation upon his profession of faith and baptism that we accept him as a member. Terry, will you wave or stand? Or do both, really. You could do both. There you go. There you go, man. And so uh, we are just, uh, we're so thankful that God has brought Terry our way. Um, Women in the Word begins this week. There is a table just outside for you ladies, or you can sign up online at the website. I would encourage you to be there. Tonight, we have our first first Sunday of the month uh, prayer meeting in quite a while, and so uh, I would encourage you to come back tonight at 7 o'clock as we pray. Uh, one last thing, uh, Tuesday, two days from now, at Jagger's Restaurant, uh, there is uh, our school ministry is having a fundraiser where if you dine there, do you have to tell them something or take something? Yes, you have to take something or just tell them. Okay, so you can either take the flyer that's in your uh, that should be in your mailbox, or you can just mention Gray Road Christian School. Thank you, Aubrey, and uh, and then they will give a portion of what you spend that night will come and be donated to our school ministry. So uh, we're here to promote fast food for at least one day this month, all right? Uh, so I hope you'll be able to participate in that. Uh, that's probably enough by way of announcements. I'm sure I could announce more. Um, and Debbie will probably tell me tomorrow what I forgot. But now, for now, we'll just go to the Bible, shall we? Um, let's... Let's look at Philippians chapter 1. If you are not familiar with the Bible and you're using one in the pew, it's on page 980. And you'll look in the second column of that left-hand page and find the little 27. That's where we're going to begin reading, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. This is what the Apostle Paul says by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's pray together. 
Our Father, we bow before you, knowing that apart from your help, we will not understand or respond to your words in the way that you desire. And so we ask for that help, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will speak through your word to our hearts. I pray, God, that you will grant me clarity and conviction and courage and power as I preach power beyond myself, your power, so that your word penetrates our hearts and changes the way we think and the way that we live. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. What does it mean to become a Christian? Is the Christian one who has turned over a new leaf in their lives? Were they, did they find themselves headed in the wrong direction, so they make a course correction? Is the Christian one who breaks bad habits and starts better ones? In other words, is the Christian a man or a woman who undergoes a kind of moral reformation? The answer is no. The Bible doesn't teach that. Becoming a Christian is not a moral reformation. It is a total transformation. So, becoming a Christian is not like getting a pacemaker, all right? It's not adding some artificial device to your body that's kind of going to keep your heart in line. That's not what becoming a Christian is. Becoming a Christian is being laid on the table because your heart doesn't work and you need a heart transplant. That's what becoming a Christian is. The taking out of an old heart and the putting in of a new one. So the gospel really is a heart transplant kind of message. We need a total transformation. We, we're spiritually dead and we need life. We're in the dark and we need to come to the light. We are enemies of God, and we need to be reconciled to God. We're blind about the truth of God and the truth about Christ, and we need to see. And through the gospel, this is what God does in people, so that Paul says elsewhere, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away, the new has come. That's what it means to become a Christian. The old has passed away. The new has come. There is a newness. And this total transformation makes us fit for heaven. But while it fits us for heaven, we no longer fit in this world. We're fit for heaven, but not for this world. The Bible says we're strangers and aliens. We're at odds with the world, with the world's way of thinking, of seeing life and truth and eternity. We, we simply don't belong. Well, that might be okay, except that it's not actually a pleasant experience to not belong to the world. It's like people, some people might want to, uh, just think of it this way, okay? I, I don't mean to start a discussion of immigration, but I'm going to discuss immigration for just a second. 
There are those who basically would want to put a big red keep out sign on the door of the United States. But if you're going to come in, you must Americanize, right? You must do this and do that. You can, you can, you can adopt our culture. You should just stop altogether speaking your language. You just need to, to do all of these things because you need to fit the mold that we've got going here. Now, I, I don't assume any of you would think that. However, what I would say is that the world is very much like those who think that. If you're going to be in the world, you need to think like we think. You need to speak like we speak. You, need to, you can't have your own culture. You can't have your own way of thinking. You can't have your own way of living. You need to conform to the world or you can just go ahead and get out of the world. That is the way that the world operates. That's the opposition that Christians face. And that's the kind of opposition that the Philippians were facing in their day. So what are they to do in a culture that demands such conformity? Well, Paul answers in this paragraph. He says that in such a situation, these Christians should be primarily concerned to live their lives in conformity to the gospel. To not be conformed to the world, but to be transformed people. So that his idea here is basically a summary of what's in verse 27, live a life worthy of the gospel. That is the call of Paul in the midst of this opposition. So let's think about it. First, we see the command to obey. The command to obey, it's right there in verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's the central thrust of the whole paragraph. Everything that comes after that flows out of that statement. Now, to this point, Paul has just been explaining things. He's been explaining his thankfulness for their partnership, explaining how he prays for them, explaining his current situation and how it's actually advanced the gospel, explaining how death would be gained, but life would be better for them. He's just been explaining, explaining, explaining. But now, he moves from explaining to commanding. This is the first command in the letter. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. In essence, to this point, Paul's explained how he has lived his life worthy of the gospel, and now he's turning to them and saying, now you... Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Just think about that. Think about the substance of this command. The verb uh, in Greek is actually this long phrase, let your manner of life be. It's a command about our way of living, but there's actually more than meets the eye here because this particular kind of life is the life of a citizen, He's calling them to be good citizens. The root of the word is the Greek word polis, from which we get city. So we have Indianapolis, right? Minneapolis, Annapolis. And then, of course, there is the city in which Superman lives, Metropolis, right? So why are you laughing? He lives there. You go to Metropolis, Illinois, they have these, all these Superman things that you can see there. Um, well, at least... They saw the one, I saw one Superman thing. I think you can stick your head in, suit, in a hole where Superman is. I don't know what else is in Metropolis, uh, except a lot of crime, apparently. And that's why Superman lives there. 
Um, but it's also the word from which we get our English word citizen. So this command is to live a particular kind of life as a citizen. Now, if you'll remember, Philippi is a Roman colony. Do you remember that? After this famous battle about a century earlier, it had been named Philippi after Philip of Macedon, Alexander the Great's father. Or it had been named that, and then it had been made a Roman colony later uh, to honor it. So these citizens of Philippi were actually citizens of Rome. They are truly Roman citizens. They have the privileges of Roman citizens. They have the responsibilities of Roman citizens. In the eyes of the government, they are to act like Roman citizens. But Paul's not telling them they need to be good Roman citizens. He's not telling them anything like that. He's actually saying their true citizenship lies elsewhere. If you look at chapter 3, verse 20, you will see in the first few words, our citizenship is in heaven. So when Paul in chapter 1 says, live your life as citizens, he's not thinking of Rome. He's thinking of heaven. You see, Philippi was like a Rome away from Rome. And the church is meant to be a colony of heaven away from heaven. It is meant to be that place where God rules and reigns so that we both have the privileges of heavenly citizens and we have the responsibilities of heavenly citizens. And Paul's saying, act like citizens. Don't act like you belong here. Act like you belong where you belong to God, to Christ in heaven. And so he says, act like citizens, and then he adds this, worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, Paul is writing to Christians, so please do not get confused and think that what Paul is saying is that you have to live in a worthy manner in order to become citizens of heaven and belong to Jesus Christ. That is not the case at all. We are saved by grace through faith apart from works. So to live worthy does not mean that. To live worthy is to live up to the greatness and the glory and the wonder of the gospel. So if you went to the marketplace in that day and you wanted some pomegranates, I don't know why you would want them, but you would go and you were going to get pomegranates. You would go and here's the pomegranate man and uh, you put the pomegranate, you want three, so you put three pomegranates on one side of a scale. Now you'll recall that money in that day was not by, you know, paper denominations, it was by weight. So on the other side of the scale, you would put money until that balanced. And once that balanced, you would know how much those pomegranates are worth by how much money needs to be paid for them in weight. And what Paul is saying is the greatness and the glory and the weightiness of the gospel should be reflected in the way that we live. That we don't take this lightly. That life is to be lived. It is a manner of life. It is not a 
decision to be made. Do you understand this? The Christian life is not merely a Christian decision. It is a life. It is a life that demonstrates how great and glorious Jesus Christ is to us. The fact that He is... I mean, there are those who, who live as, as, as if Jesus is only Savior. He is only Savior. So I've got my fire insurance, so to speak, and at the end, because I made that one decision, I bought that policy that one day in VBS, I know in the end I'll be saved. Now, friends, there is no doubt that it is wonderful and glorious and God converts people in moments. It's wonderful. But He doesn't hand us a fire insurance policy and just say, hey, just make sure you show this at the end. Because He doesn't come simply to be our Savior. He has come to be our Lord. Lord. Which means He rules. And we are to live in a manner that demonstrates that He is both Savior and Lord. The weightiness of that great truth. I wonder what your life communicates about the gospel. I wonder if it communicates anything beyond these walls. If if there's anything about your life that would demonstrate the worthiness of Jesus Christ to you, the worthiness of the gospel to to you in your life as as you live and as you work and as you go to school. Does it communicate that Jesus is only a Savior you nod to or that He is a Lord you bow to? That he is worthy. Are you living as a citizen worthy of the gospel? Well, that's the substance of it. What is the significance of it? The significance, I mean, how important is it really? These people are in the midst of opposition. There are opponents everywhere. And if you look at verse 28, apparently they're doing things that intimidate and frighten Christians. When you're scared, when you're intimidated, when it seems like the world is out to get you, when they could knock on your door at any time and take you away to prison, are you sure that it's actually important? That, I mean, this is like, this is what you learn in a, you know, I, don't, I, I hesitate to say women in the word, but this is what you learn in a women in the word class, right? You take your notes in your notebook and then you go along and, and when everything's good, you try to obey and all these things, but when... But when people are coming after you, when they're knocking on your door, when they're threatening things, when they're doing X, Y, and Z against the people of faith, are you really sure that this needs to take priority? Shouldn't we be doing something else? Shouldn't we be talking about our safety? Shouldn't we be talking about how to avoid confrontation? Or maybe better, maybe we should be talking about how to fight fire with fire. Well, Paul tells us whether this is significant and how significant it is in one word, the first word of verse 27, only, only. Do you know how many things he could have asked them to do in response to what's going on around them? Do you know what everything else he's going to tell them in this letter is meant to point back to? This one command. 
Why have the mind of Christ? Because that's a life worthy of the gospel. Why work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? Because that's a life worthy of the gospel. Why do everything without grumbling or complaining? Because that's a life worthy of the gospel. Why forget what's behind and press on toward the goal? Because that's a life worthy of the gospel. Why rejoice in the Lord always? Because that's a life worthy of the gospel. Why in all circumstances should we learn to be content? Because that is a life worthy of the gospel. Everything flows out of that one command. He could have put a period at the end of that and just said... Hasta luego, all right? I mean, he, he wouldn't have done that because he didn't speak Spanish. But he could have done that. But he doesn't. He goes on to explain to them through the rest of the letter what it means to have a life worthy of the gospel. So it's no surprise that he begins the command only. As in, this is the one and only thing that you ought to concentrate on. You ought to be laser focused on this thing. He says, whether I'm there, he goes on to say, whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I want to hear this of you. And now we're going to get to what he says, but it's all a reflection back of what it means, of, of what it looks like to live a life worthy of the gospel. No matter what happens, he says, no matter what the opposition you face, let nothing deter you. I don't think that I need to demonstrate all the ways that things in our society are currently in opposition to the gospel, to the Christianity, to God's truth, to God's way of thinking about human beings and life and relationships. I think the pressing question I need to ask is this. Is the main thing on your mind living a life worthy of the gospel? Is that the thing that takes up your thoughts and affects how you plan and live and respond to news stories and respond to co-workers? is obedience, is, is living a life that demonstrates the weightiness and the glory and the wonder and the goodness and the mercy and the love and the justice of Jesus Christ. Is that what's taken up your life? Would anybody just say, oh yeah, I know what, he, I know what she's about. The only thing she does is seem to, it seems to do is live for Jesus. The way she speaks always seems to be pointing people to Christ and to His truth. The way He interacts with His co-workers is Christ-like. The way they even speak about things that they hate in the culture seem to reflect something different than just animosity. There's something in there. There's a brokenheartedness about the world in there that you just don't hear often. I wonder if Paul got an update about us in prison, that whether he was here or whether he was absent, he'd hear that we were living a life worthy of the gospel. 
Well, that's the command to obey. To live as citizens worthy of Christ and to make it the laser focus of life. Secondly, we see the way to obey. The way to obey. Now, Paul seems to go on to show us in these uh, subsequent phrases what it means to be single-minded in this commitment to live for Christ. What will it look like in the midst of opposition? What, what manner will we take? What is the way here? Well, he says in verse 27, stand firm. I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. In other words, we must be immovable in our commitment to Christ. Nothing must be able to shake us or to throw us off. We must have lives built on the rock so that, as Jesus said in Matthew 7, the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall. We must live in such a way that there is no way to live so that the rains don't fall and the winds don't blow and the waves don't beat on your house. It's always going to happen. But we are to be immovable. We are to stand in the ocean of culture, as it were, with the waves of opposition hitting us, but not giving an inch, not backing off of our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, not stopping, not letting the world's ideas penetrate our hearts, our minds. Sometimes it seems very easy to do that. It's like, uh, you know, blocking a, 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 keeping a beach ball out of a basketball goal, right? Because it's just, it just, it's ridiculous. That thing's never going through. But here's the thing. There are ideas that are swirling among us. I cannot list all of them for you, but I can say that it's not in the big bad ideas that are so obvious that the church will be taken down. It's in the small subtle ideas that'll come in and say, well, don't you know that this is what it means to love people? Well, don't you know that you need this in addition to the Bible if you're really going to understand what's going on in culture? That's where things... That's where, our, that's where we will not be standing firm. We won't be on a rock. We'll be on sand. We'll give up the rock and we'll gladly stand on sand because it had a, you know, a good salesman and a nice price tag to it. You see, the, the Bible is clear that, that in, in Ephesians 2, Paul says that we are a temple. Peter speaks about that, and that, that we're built. God, God is building His temple, us, brick by brick. And what Paul is saying when he's saying that we need to stand firm here, that, that, that you can't live a life worthy of the gospel and just give in. That's not worthy of the gospel. He's basically saying that the world may huff and puff, but it cannot blow your house down. Stand firm and then strive. With one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Striving is a word of competition, a struggle for victory, of, uh, of fighting. But notice what they're striving for. Because otherwise, if you just focus on the fact that striving is fighting, you might think that they're striving for control of the culture, but they're not. 
They're striving, he says, for the faith of the gospel. That's what they're striving for. It's a fight for the faith. You remember 2 Timothy 4, 7, Paul tells Timothy, I have fought the good fight. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, he commands Timothy, fight the good fight. And so here in Philippians, with other language, he's telling these Christians, and he's telling us, fight the good fight. Strive. If you think of, th- think of standing firm and striving kind of as, as two sides of the same coin, the standing firm being defense, right? You, you don't give up ground. And the striving is offense, that instead we're going to take ground. But what does it mean for the church to take ground? If you don't define that right, you'll get everything else wrong. Okay, I just want you to think, how would you answer that? What does it mean for the church to take ground in the world? The biblical answer, if you read through the book of Acts, is that the Word keeps going and the kingdom keeps expanding by the salvation of people through Jesus Christ. That's the only ground we're going to take. We may try to take other ground, but it's not the ground the Bible calls us to take. The Bible doesn't call us to take a nation. The Bible calls us to take the world with the gospel. So that every time that the Bible is explained and applied from our pulpit, we are striving. Every conversation where true, God's truth is spoken in love, striving. Every time the gospel is shared with someone who needs the hope of Christ, striving, striving, striving. Every time we send a check to support a missionary preaching the gospel and planting churches, we're striving. We're striving together. We're striving for the world. Don't set your sights so low as to just want control of a culture. One day we'll inherit the world. That's what we're after. That's what Christ has promised. We're heirs and co-heirs with Christ. That's where we're headed. So we have to stay focused on that, and we're striving. Isn't it compelling that no matter how hot the fire of opposition gets, none of the apostles ever say in the New Testament, now, fellas, maybe we should take it easy for a while. Maybe we should just go on a retreat, we should just back off, and maybe when things cool down, the culture seems more receptive, then we'll engage again. They never do that. Striving. And then not frightened. That's what he says in verse 28. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. The, 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 the word frightened describes like if you imagine a group of horses getting spooked and they just turn tail and they run. That's what frightened is. It's to be intimidated. Paul says don't do it. And here's the thing. Paul doesn't waste words. There are obviously things happening that could be frightening, that are meant to intimidate these Christians. But did you notice he doesn't even say what they are? Isn't that interesting? Why? Because what it is that intimidates you, what it is that might frighten you, is actually not the point. The point is, how do you respond when opposition seeks to intimidate without intimidation? 
How is it that you seek to respond when the world tries to scare you? You're not frightened. It's the response that Paul is concerned about, not the details of the circumstance. He says, not frightened in anything. So no matter what it is that comes. I mean, we see this kind of fear very often. People are just in a heap. They just crumble thinking the world is just out of our control. And, 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 and how is the church supposed to survive such a circumstance? As if the church has never been in a circumstance where the world was against it prior to 2021. 2021. When Jesus promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, we have to seriously ask ourselves the question, do I believe that? Or is that just, is that just like cheerleaders at a pep rally for the last place team in the conference? Saying we can win, but there's no hope of winning. It's not. It's the statement of the one who will finish the work he starts by dying. He will build his church. So what have we to fear? What have we to fear? Stand firm, strive not intimidated. One more thing about the way we obey. Together. Do you notice all the together language in here? Look at verse 27. The end of verse 27, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The life worthy of the gospel is a together life. It is not a solitary life. It is not a loner life. It is joined with other Christians in the church. You see, I think we as Christians need to move away from asking this question. Where do you go to church? Why? Because the New Testament would ask me something more like this. Where do you belong? Going sounds like I just go and I get what I want. Going makes the church sound like a buffet, right? There's lots of great things on the buffet, and I can go in, and I can take the worship, and I can take a small group if I want, but if it starts to taste a little funny, I'm going to put away the small group. I'll take that, I'll take that, I'll take that, and then I walk away. But you see, the church was never meant to be a buffet. The church was meant to be a family dinner table where we all sit around and everything on the table goes on everyone's plate and we all share in all of life. That's what the church is. Together. I would actually be so bold as to say there is no life worthy of the gospel that is lived in that buffet-style approach to the church. Disconnected in any meaningful way from the church. It's not a life worthy of the church. Worthy of the gospel, I mean. It's not a life worthy. Jesus himself is so connected to the church that when the apostle Paul persecutes the church, Jesus asks, why are you persecuting me? In Acts chapter 9. I 
I mean, one may think they're quite strong on their own. I don't need something like church membership or fellowship. I mean, aside from, aside from you know, I don't need the kind of connection. Some Christians need that, you know. They're more needy like that. I'm, I'm, I'm stronger than that. I'm a kind of a, you know, I'm just wired to kind of stand on my own. I don't, I don't need other people like others do. Dear friend, if for some reason that's what you think, that's not actually spiritual maturity. It's spiritual immaturity. It's pride. It's arrogance. If the Apostle Paul desperately needs the churches, which he does, he makes that clear in his letters, then we should beware of thinking we don't. We do this together. The command to obey, the way to obey, thirdly, the encouragement to obey. Paul encourages the Philippians to obey by letting them know that the way that they walk through this, the way they live worthy of the gospel, the way that they do it, standing firm, striving together, not frightened, that this actually points to a greater reality. Look at the end of the second half of verse 28. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, them being the opponents, but of your salvation and that from God. You see, living, living for Christ in these days in a culture that hates Christ without fear, without intimidation, not backing down, striving for the faith of the gospel, continuing on, living as citizens of heaven, this ultimately demonstrates to the world that the last day is coming. That's what Paul is saying. It's a pointer to their destruction. The people who are destroying the church, just go to Second Thessalonians 1 and just read there, starting in about verse 6 or 7, that God is pleased to afflict those who have been afflicting you, he says to the church. God will bring justice on the last day. Those who seek to destroy the church now will face their own destruction then, Paul says. But not only that, this steadfast life for Christ in the midst of opposition points to the reality of salvation, that the Spirit of God truly lives within us, not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and self-control. You see, if we wither in the face of opposition, all right, if we wither in the face of persecution and the revulsion of the world, then we demonstrate that we don't actually belong to Christ. We don't belong to one who is a king. We don't belong to one who rules. We don't belong to one who is sovereign. We don't belong to one who reigns. It's interesting. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus tells a parable of soils. Do you remember this? And there's seed sown, and they go on different soils, right? One of those soils is rocky ground. And about this, Jesus says it springs up immediately, but then it gets scorched by the sun, and it withers And later he explains, saying this, These are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they heard the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. You see that? 
Withering and falling away is not an indication that I am trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. When the scorching sun of tribulation and persecution hits the true believer, something else actually happens. The heat of the sun refines the faith and proves it to be even more true. That's what 1 Peter says in 1 Peter 1. The tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That it shows the genuineness of our faith when the scorching sun hits and we don't wither. And that's what Paul is telling them. And then he underlines the importance of this idea of obedience through suffering by explaining that it's part of God's plan for us. Look at verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. So he makes clear that God has granted us faith so that we might believe and be saved. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, well, isn't that great? Isn't it great that God has granted you faith to believe? Now you can get through. He goes on. What else does he say God has granted? That's not a rhetorical question. What else has God said, as Paul said, that God grants in verse 29? Suffering. Um... Was that a slip of the pen, Paul? Because there are plenty of Christians who are ready to say, you know what, suffering is inevitable in this life. I'm good with that. Suffering can be used by God for His purposes. Okay. Well, Paul pushes the Philippians beyond that. The word here for granted means to be given a gracious gift. To see suffering. The suffering here in particular in the opposition of the world. The way that we saw last week that the apostles went away from suffering rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. That suffering is a gift from God. I sat at my dining room table recently with a dear friend and brother in Christ. And there were some people that, that, that neither of us knew very well at the table also. And he recounted the last few years of his life. And he said this. I can't quote him. I'm going to paraphrase him. He said he thanked God for the disease that almost killed him. That makes no sense in our world, does it? No sense whatsoever. But this is a statement worthy of the gospel made by one living a life 
worthy of the gospel, one who knows that his citizenship is in heaven, one who knows that nothing will separate him from Jesus' love, one who knows that according to Acts 14.22, it is only through many tribulations that we will enter the kingdom of God. One who knows, Romans 8.18, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. These are the words of one who knows that he follows a suffering Savior. And if you expect to follow a suffering Savior without suffering, you won't be following that Savior. So it is a gift to be able to follow Jesus. It is a gift to trust in Jesus. It is a gift to do, as Paul says, to bear in your body the marks of his death. It is a gift to suffer because it makes us more like Jesus. It demonstrates, it it improves our faith in him. It glorifies him because we know that no amount of suffering that I have faced or that you have faced even comes close to one iota of what he faced on the cross. It's all a pointer. And so it's a gift. It's a gift to be reminded of how Jesus suffered. It's a gift to be reminded that this suffering can't possibly last. The worst that this suffering can do is kill me. That's the worst. And what will that do? Bring us home. How easy is it to forget that? How easy. To forget that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ and his work doesn't just come in Bible studies and, and, and discussions over coffee and, and, and sermon and nice sermons and warm, comfortable uh, 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 auditoriums. It comes in the fire of affliction. It comes in the fires of opposition. It comes in pain. But it results in glory. Because while our bodies, our outer man, wastes away day by day, our inner man is renewed. Because all of a sudden, what really matters, really matters to me. When we suffer, especially at the hands of those who hate us, hate the Scripture, hate our Savior, if we will see it as a gift from God that points to our final salvation, do you know what will happen? We'll be encouraged to keep going. If that's how we see it, we'll be encouraged to walk on to keep living a life worthy of the gospel. To smile. Because Jesus said, blessed are you when men persecute you and say all manner of evil against you for my sake. Great is your reward in heaven. Every strike of pain, every antagonistic word, we think, how great will heaven be? If we will only live a life worthy of the gospel when all of the conditions and circumstances of life seem to favor living a life worthy of the gospel, we won't actually be living a life worthy of the gospel. 
So as the fire of opposition continues to burn hot and spread in our culture, may God work in us, in every single member of our congregation, in every Christian in this city, that we might live a life worthy of the gospel, that we might stand firm, Gray Road, together, that we might strive together, that we will not be intimidated Because the most intimidating and the most frightening thing that could ever happen to us has already been dealt with in Jesus Christ. And so we'll be encouraged by the salvation that awaits us. And we'll just sing every day, Come rejoice now, O my soul, for His love is my reward. Fear is gone and hope is sure. Christ is mine forevermore. Let's pray. Oh God, how thankful we are that Christ is ours forevermore, that by Your grace You have granted that we might trust in Him, and by Your grace You have granted that we might suffer for His name's sake. Oh God, would You refine the way we see such things? Would You help us to live a life as a citizen of heaven in a world that hates Jesus Christ, that hates you, that is in rebellion against you, would you help us to stand firm together and strive together and to not be intimidated? Would you remind us of the salvation that is to come for all who trust in Christ? Would you remind us that those who seek to destroy the church now will one day face you, Lord? We are thankful that we can trust you with that last day and you will finally do what is right. Oh God, may we live a life worthy of the gospel this day and in the days of this week, and in all the days that you give us here until you bring us home. We pray it for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.